everyone, and welcome to the next edition of the Money Men podcast, which is designed to talk about all things finance and wealth related. Please remember, this is general advice only and does not take into account your personal circumstances. Seek professional advice which takes your individual circumstances into account before implementing any ideas or strategies mentioned in this podcast. Anyway, enough of the legal stuff. Here comes Stephen Luke. Hello and welcome to the Money Men episode four. I'm Steve May and I'm here with my colleague Luke Styles. G'day Luke. How are you going everyone? You uh, had a good week? Absolutely. Yeah, it's been a, been a very, very good week. I'll t- tell you what one of the highlights of the week has been is we've got our website up and running. Yeah. So www.themoneymen.com.au. So look, look out for that, everyone. Very and uh, cool. we've got our Facebook page up there as well as uh, many of you would have seen by now. We've had a huge amount of support. Thank and you. we thank everyone for listening. Absolutely. Now, these shows are general advice, Luke. What does that mean? Well, it means that we're not taking into account your personal situation. So it it means that you need to take everything we say with a grain of salt. We, we are not applying the discussion topics that we talk about in regards to your personal situation. So it's general in nature. That's all it is. Um, and you need to remember that if you want to expand on any of the topics discussed, that you do actually receive personal financial advice. Absolutely, um, we don't we don't know anything about you mm-hmm. as you're listening to us, yep. and um, you know it's not personal, uh, comprehensive advice by any means. It's general. Um, yep. Take take that on board. So let's get into the show. Yeah. Tip of the week or tip of the episode. Mm-hmm. Um, this week it's don't panic. <laughs> <laughs> with uh, the world falling over. <laughs> with the world falling apart, with, uh, you know, what did I hear on Monday? $45 billion has been wiped off, off the Australian share market. Mm. Big number, Luke. Yeah, what does that mean, Steve? Well, what does it mean? It's a big number. It's very <laughs> sensational, isn't it? Uh, it's a, Makes it's good a headlines. Good, good, good headline. Um, but, you know, the the ASX market capitalisation is $2 trillion, mm-hmm. um, and $45 billion or whatever the number was, um, it was about 2.5%. Early Monday morning, the market was down by about 2.5%. So quite a small proportion of the entire market. Absolutely. And and 2.5% doesn't sound anywhere near as bad on the news as uh, as billions, does it? Um, Correct. So so we have to sometimes just be very, very much understanding of the fact that the news is there to sell a story and to make things as sensationalised as possible. Um, in reality, two and a half percent isn't that bad. You know, mm. we prefer it not to, yeah. you know, be that way. But it's it's not that that bad. Yeah. Um, what's it on the back of? You know, why has there been this bit of volatility? Um, primarily, um, what's that thing that's floating around at the moment? Coronavirus. Dude. The, the thing that's making us run out yeah. of toilet paper. Yeah. Well, <laughs> which. I find it a bit confusing, but I've been oh, yeah. explained to me today that it's because people are worried that they're going to be in lockdown. Yes, uh, apparently that's yeah. the, the reason for it. And I'm, I'm not making light at all of the coronavirus. Um, you know, it, it's obviously uh, out there, and mm-hmm. it's something that the world has to deal with. Yeah. Um, but generally, well, over time, markets have tended to recover quite well mm. after. Um, you know, health situations yep. like this, such as viruses. So, you know, the SARS and what are we, what else have we had? We've had the avian uh, flu, yeah. Ebola, swine flu. Swine flu. Um, it'll, it'll, you know, 
Yeah, it'd be interesting to actually work out exactly how long it took markets to recover after these, you know, major pandemic and epidemic events. Yeah, I, I don't know how long they sort of lasted, yeah. each of these ones. But what I, what I do, do know is I did a bit of homework on this, mm. is that the uh, Standard & Poor's Index, um, after SARS, um, was contained, uh, was up 20% over the next 12 months. So it was a twelve-month period. Well, after afterwards, the market uh, the yep. market jumped by gotcha. twenty. Well, not jump, it went up by twenty percent. Yep. With the swine flu, it was thirty-five percent. Yeah. Avian, it was eighteen percent, and with Ebola, it was ten percent. So, what that tends to tell us is that once the world knows and is reassured that things are mm-hmm. under control, that the market comes back again. If you're not in the market, you won't actually get that. So exactly yeah, right. So probably pulling out and then not getting back in isn't the most wise of strategies. No, I think that's the worst thing you could do. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you wrote a blog recently on this, and we'll get to that in a second. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, a couple of things around the Australian share market. You know, the Australian share market's down about 5% for the week. This is as of you know the 2nd of, of March. Yep. Um, 8% for the month. Mm-hmm. Uh, about 3% over the last three months. Yep. Um, what's it been down over the past year? Might be a trick question, this one. I actually don't think it is down. No, it's not. So for the, the year, it's uh, up 4%. Yep. And that doesn't include any dividends that would have been received on, yep. on those shares, which would probably be around 4 Yeah. Um, so the reality is, you know, you look back at the, the, the yep. last 12 months and despite the volatility in the past week or month or quarter, mm. um, yeah, it's still in okay shape. Yeah. So by holding equities... For the long run, you've still you've still been able to make money. Yeah, that's right. Um, and you did write a blog, as I touched on. I did. Yes. Tell, tell me what you wrote in that blog. Uh, well, the 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 blog the blog was around you know as you referred to earlier the coronavirus and and the world falling off the cliff. Um, but I wanted to highlight what does it mean to different people in different stages of their life with this market volatility? Because the reality is markets are always going to be volatile. They're going to be up, down, swings, roundabouts. Um, you, you, have to be, you, you have to be either get used to that or be educated around it to understand um, and be okay with it. But the, the point I was trying to make if I'm an accumulator, so I've got my superannuation fund and I'm receiving... So an accumulator is yeah, a younger person. A younger person, sorry. Yeah, so I'm still working, I'm earning a wage and my employer's paying me super. While the market's going down, every time my employer puts a contribution away from me or into my fund, and hopefully more regularly than the quarterly basis that most employers are required to do, um, but if it goes in more regularly, it means I'm, buy- I'm buying good quality businesses and I'll highlight that, these are good quality businesses at a temporary discount. So I'm getting more bang for my buck. Now the second piece to this, or the, not the piece of the puzzle, but the second piece is people in the deaccumulation stage, so retirees, people reliant on that portfolio uh, to draw and generate an income. Well, a good quality portfolio, and I highlighted highlight it highlighted this in the blog, a good quality portfolio is going to have a good level of cash protections in place because we know the market can be a yo-yo and we want to make sure that you're not reliant on selling down that portfolio when markets are down. So you have that cash in place, you have a bit of dry powder so you can manage these times of volatility. So what does it mean for people? Well, if I'm accumulating, I'm winning 
and if I'm, and if I'm a retiree and I'm drawing down on my portfolio, I'm generally not speaking and hopefully not drawing down on the invested assets that are that are you know part of the market and down. I'm actually drawing down on the cash components. So that that's just good financial management in my view. But I just wanted to highlight that. So my, my that, that that was the you know that was one of the key messages in my in my in your blog, blog yeah. but you know the reality is fortune favors the brave you mm. you can't be going in and out of the market you have to have a plan and you have to understand that volatility has always existed human nature though it's to panic isn't it it is and that yeah. and and we've got to go against you know we're irrational beings we have to go against our rational tendencies and and you know the tendency is when everyone's saying that the world is falling apart mm. and share markets are going down you know the human mind says well the share markets are going down by two and a half percent in a day then you know it won't be long and won't have anything yep. and uh, they sell if you sell uh, in a low and don't get back in mm-hmm. to get uh, the advantage of the rebound, then you've done yourself a, a double whammy of yeah. harm, haven't you? You've uh, you've taken a loss, and then you <laughs> haven't managed to be in there to get the rebound, and that's what that's what happens when people act irrationally. And and it's been proven people are incapable of timing the market. They mm. they're not capable of timing when they should be in, and they're not tap- capable of timing when they should go out. So what's the better thing to do? Stand there, do nothing, and stay the course. Mm-hmm. Well, you, you spoke in a recent podcast around the person who had a dollar 114 years ago, put it in the market, yep. and it's worth... Two, two point, about 2.4 mil, re, you know, dividends yeah. reinvested. So yeah. it's, a, it's a really important message. It's something that, pe- you know, people need to be aware of. And, and if you're not aware of it or, you, or it is causing you angst, you need to get some help. You know, you need to get help, professional, professional advice um, to, you know, to basically overcome... What, what your worries are and always be hesitant of anyone who tells you that you know you should be jumping out of the market now and jumping back in later absolutely fortune sellers <laughs> yes it's uh, very you very very it's a bit like playing the poker machines if you're going to be uh, reliant on um you know trying to get in, in and out of the market you just can't pick it so the key message mm-hmm. um investments that have exposure to share markets are you know long-term investments yeah um volatility is absolutely to be expected and riding out that volatility is uh, pretty much the best way to handle it. Yep. Okay, don't panic. Um, one interesting point, uh, and people often say to me, if this continues, I'll, I'll have no money left. Mm-hmm. It's important to understand that if, you, if you're investing in the share market, you're investing in companies. Yep. You know, you're buying shares in companies. Yep. And in a diversified portfolio, Every single company that you are invested in would have to go broke for you to lose your money. Yep, which is very, very unlikely. I'd consider that to be um, an apocalyptic event. Mm -hmm. Um, And the last thing we'd be worried about in an event like that is that... uh, Toilet paper. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) money would be the last thing on our mind. So yeah, it's an interesting topic. I mean, in periods of volatility, there's a lot of news and there's a lot of uh, dramatization around what's happening. Mm. Um, the key for most people is um, stay the course, make sure that you you know review your investments yep. if you haven't done it for a while, speak yep. to someone, um, but generally um, stay the course and you'll end up end up winning. Yeah, absolutely. I think good message. All right. Um, another topic that we'll cover off on today is uh, something that I get asked about a lot, and mm-hmm. uh, even even by people who are younger and not in retirement phase or approaching retirement, um, is 
the age pension. This thing that you know people know that one day they're going to get, um, but they don't know when and they don't know how much. And yep. uh, I thought we'd just spend a few minutes today talking about the age pension yeah. and, and more specifically, you know, around when you can be eligible yep. for it and uh, what the rates are and, and, and what the assets and income limits yeah. are. Yeah, it's, it's good. I think it's good to have a bit of a refresher and, you know, pe- people can know what they might be able to expect. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you can you know, tell your parents or your parents, you can tell your kids what to, to expect or, or whatever. But do you know what age, uh, the age pension age is, Luke? Well, I should, I should know that, Steve. Yeah, um, you do, and I'm sure you do. Um, varies between 66 and 67, as yeah, of today. Yeah. So for most people now, 67. It's 67. Yeah. And possibly we could expect, as time goes on, that you know, the younger people in our society might uh, have an older age pension age yeah. than that. But um, at the moment, as it stands, most people will have to be 67. For their eligible. Yep, they'll have to be an Australian resident and lived in Australia for... Ten years. Interesting. I, that mm. I, I actually, I actually didn't didn't know that you needed to be an Australian resident um, for a period of ten years. So I, mm. I wasn't aware of that that qualifying factor. So it's interesting that you brought brought that up in the show notes. And you don't automatically get it. Um, mm. It depends on what your income and assets are yes. at the time that you become eligible. And uh, that's an often misunderstood piece of uh, of the age pension puzzle. Yep. Um, but the rates are so. If you're a, if you're a single person, mm-hmm. um, then at the moment the um, the rate of age pension or what you get per annum yep. on the age pension would be about twenty four thousand two hundred and sixty eight dollars. Okay, a year, a year, a year. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that includes you know the pension supplement and en- energy supplement yes. that come along with with the age pension. That's a full rate. And as a couple, so a couple will receive combined. Uh, $36,500 odd dollars. Yep. Okay, so single, you know, 24000 and a couple, 36000 yep. Okay, so that that's enough, uh, I guess, to provide... Tax-free a, income, Steve? Yeah, um, yeah, it would be. Yeah, yep. that's tax-free income. So basically, that, that would enable a person to have a little bit, a person or a couple to have a little bit less than what's considered to be a modest retirement lifestyle yep. in Australia. So it's a basic retirement yeah. lifestyle. Yeah, yeah. It's a a social safety net. It is. Um, Interestingly, there are a couple of tests that are applied to Mm. work out um, whether people can get the age pension and how much they can get. Yep. And uh, they're called the assets test and the income test. And the one that hurts you the most is the one that is applied to you. Of course it okay. does. So, um, yeah, they, don't, know, yeah. they don't miss you. That's it. And, and, that, and that's fair enough too. I yeah. mean, it does does cost a lot of money to fund age pensions and, yeah. uh, and you know, I guess people with um, way too much in assets um, probably shouldn't get it and people who are earning lots and lots of income probably shouldn't get it Absolutely. Either. I think I think that's a very reasonable test to, to apply. Yeah. So what are those um, assets tests? So with with the assets, there's a minimum amount um, or a lower amount that you can have um, before the age pension starts to reduce. Yeah. So for a single person, that's a little over 263,000 if they are a homeowner. Yeah. And if they're not a homeowner, they can have $473,000 in assets. Yep. Um, before the age pension starts Tapers to reduce, yeah, so, so, so it's off. more ge- more generous to people who are non-homeowners and less generous for people who are homeowners. Yeah, bearing in mind that the family home or the home doesn't count as an asset. Yeah, yeah, 
it's excluded. It's excluded. Um, not much else is excluded these days, but the family home no. is. Um, Which is a contentious topic hmm. because the argument is that there's people sitting in properties worth, you know, four, five, six, seven, eight million dollars in Sydney rece- potentially receiving full age pension. Hmm. Well, Sydney or other capital cities, hmm. I'm just using Sydney as an example. Yeah. Um, yeah, the opposing argument to that is, you know, if they bought it, you know, 50 years ago for 50 grand, yeah. is it really their fault? Um, you know, but we we're not we're not here to get no no we're not yeah, no. no. <laughs> um, and if and a couple, so a couple home a homeowner couple can mm. have um, just just on just under three hundred ninety five thousand dollars in assets before the age pension starts to taper off, and can and if they're non homeowners mm-hmm. can have six hundred and five thousand dollars in yep. assets before it starts to taper off. So yeah, that's reasonably gener- generous. And then if you go to the other end, um, at what point does the age pension stop or not not be paid due mm-hmm. to the assets test? Yep. Then a single homeowner can have $575,000 roughly um, and a single non-homeowner can seven, have, have 785000 And a couple can have um, $863,000 in yep. assets before the age pension cuts out yep. if they're a homeowner. Yep. And they can actually have a million and seventy-four thousand um, dollars if they're non-homeowners. So That's it's, it's actually reasonably gen- yeah. generous. The assets test, I think. Yeah, it's a yeah, absolutely fair bit of money. Hmm. Yeah. So to be able to have eight, you know, the homeowner rate for couple or asset test for couples is eight hundred sixty-three thousand five hundred. So it follows if they've got eight hundred sixty-three thousand dollars, just yep. under, they get get a tiny little bit of um, age pension, but they they get the benefits that go along with it. As yeah, well. registration and mm, yeah. more affordable uh, um, concessional yeah, various, uh, energy and things yeah, like very, that. Various yeah, various concessions that are yep. available. So it's a pretty um, yeah, pretty generous, I think. Yeah. Um, even even given that those tests, uh, those asset tests were were um, bought back a bit um, yeah, over the last couple yep. of years, scaled back. Yeah. Yep. So that's the assets test, the income test, and again, you know, I think reasonably generous. Mm-hmm. So before the age pension starts to reduce based on the income test, then a single person can earn $4,524, the equivalent of $4,500 per year yep. before the age pension starts to reduce. Yep, taper off. Yep. Taper off. Um, and the annual amount, or so, so the amount that um, they can earn before it disappears, yep. is about 53000 So they can earn $53,000 per annum mm-hmm. before... They Before are the income test, the age pension would cut out. Yeah. So remember, you're assessed under either the assets or yep. the income and test, whichever, whichever results hurts you most. Are less favourable. Yep. So, so I could potentially work and earn forty grand a year, hmm. be eligible for the age pension. A portion of the age pension. Uh, uh, yeah. Be eligible for a portion of the age pension, so I could still receive some age pension and also earn some income. Yep. You could. That's not bad. Now, couples uh, combined mm-hmm. uh, can earn about eight thousand dollars before the age pension starts to reduce, yep. and up to just over eighty thousand dollars before the age pension wow. uh, is cut out. Okay, so there are various, um, yeah, there's various other things that are taken into account regarding you know continuing to work and work bonuses and um, yep. work you know, income Incentives. banks and things yep. like that. But 
you know, generally speaking, a couple, you know, around $80,000 combined earnings before the age pension would cut out under the income test. Quite so, generous. So, yeah, pretty generous, I thought, no, I think. Yeah. Um, so I just wanted to, to touch up or cover off on that because it's a commonly asked question. I, I wanted to let people know, you know, what the amounts are that people get on full rate age pension and that um, you don't um, necessarily have to have only very small amounts of assets or income for the age pension to cut out. It's quite generous. Quite generous. So so just to reiterate there, Steve, so the single age pension per fortnight was $933 per fortnight. Yep. And a couple was $1,407 per fortnight. That's it. Yep. N- not bad. So 20, 24 and 35 grand thereabouts. Yeah, I think those were the numbers we yep. said. So, um, you know, if anyone's got superannuation at retirement mm-hmm. that uh, they can then structure to supplement that, then, yep. you know, the end result is that, that most people will be able to have a pretty, you know, comfortable yeah. uh, retirement. Retirement if with, you do it. With the age pension, as a rule stand at the moment, with the age pension underpinning that to yep. a reasonably large extent. Yep. So there you go. That's age pension. Yeah, um, very good. Time for us to have a break and we'll be back with a couple of listener questions. Excellent. At Steve May Financial Services, we know how daunting the idea of seeing a financial planner can be. Bearing your financial soul to a person you don't even know doesn't sound like fun, does it? That's why we believe in being approachable and being ourselves. Our mission is to provide uncomplicated, affordable and personalised financial advice to those who normally wouldn't get it. Contact us for a friendly, no-pressure consultation to get your financial stuff sorted. Steve May Financial Services, www.stevemayfs.com.au Welcome back, everyone. You're with Luke and Steve. Yeah, welcome back. <laughs> what are we up to today uh, with our listener questions? We've got a couple. Yeah, a couple of questions here. So we've got Michael um, and question one, and then we've got Carol and Tom question two. So a couple of very very different questions, but very do you want, good. Do you want me to head off, uh, start off with Michael? Yeah, absolutely. You lead with Michael's question. That'd be great, Steve. I think it's a good question as well. Yeah, they're all good questions. Um, we, we pick out a couple that we think are topical each, each episode. Yep. We, yep. Couldn't, we couldn't do all the, the questions per episode. But yep. Michael has asked or has said, I'm a 40-year-old male with a $500,000 mortgage. I'm on a salary of $150,000 and the sole earner in my family with two young children. Mm-hmm. I'm guessing a wife or partner as well. Yep. I would like to protect my income, and if something happens to me, I cycle a bit in my spare time, but not sure not sure I can afford it. What are my options? Yep. Okay, so question, sole income earner in the family, mm-hmm. hasn't got income protected at the moment by the sound of it. Yep. Um, not sure, Michael, that you can afford it. What are your options? Well, number one, can I answer? Yeah, I'll answer. Yeah, I yeah. think you go through it, Steve. I think... I, I think you, you'll have some really good points on this. So number one, you, you can't afford not to afford it, Michael. Yeah. Um, if your income is a thing that's driving your family's ability to mm-hmm. eat mm-hmm. Um, and uh, your ability to pay down mortgages and um, invest, then you're mad not to insure yeah. it. 
Yeah. Um, we, you obviously know that you can insure it uh, through income protection insurance um, and you must do it in yep. whatever way you can find to be able to do it, um, yep. then, then do it. So income protection insurance, well, what is it? Tell me what it is. Do you know what it is? Yeah, income, income insurance. Well, I should know. I should. You've put me on the spot a couple of times, Steve, and I should know what these things are. Um, so income protection is designed to protect your salary in the event that you are disabled or ill and cannot work temporarily. Yep. And how much can you insure? Uh, Generally speaking, up to, up to 85%, but most often we'll see policies that cover 75% of your earnings. So if you're on $100,000 per annum pre-tax, that's $75,000 per annum in yeah. income protection yeah. benefits. There's some little, little things around that yeah. where you can insure a bit more, but yeah. Um, yeah, generally speaking, 75 to 85% 70, of income. Yeah, yeah. correct. Um, commonly, uh, it's thought that income protection, and, and I listened to a podcast from a couple of reasonably famous people mm. last week <laughs> who, who were talking about, not, yeah. you don't actually need it. They were saying you don't need income protection insurance yeah. because if you get made redundant, it's you know and you can get employed uh, elsewhere. Yeah, and, or, or he, uh, I listened to the same podcast, but I think he mentioned that you had long service leave for that. So yeah. I don't know about you, but I don't come across a lot of people these days who have long service leave. Well, not enough to um, fund their um, or replace their oh, income for the rest of their yeah. working life. Yeah. But um, anyway, we can't control what other uninformed people say uh, in their podcasts. But redundancy and, mm. and loss of work, yeah, general they aren't covered in, no. a, in a normal income protection policy it's if you're ill or you're injured yeah. and you're off work for an extended period of time yeah. so so michael first of all you can't afford not to afford it you mm-hmm. need to find a way and questions that you should be asking yourself around that so and and how much you need or if you need it if you're unable to work can you and your family live off a disability support pension okay because you're the sole michael yeah. you're the sole income earner if you're ill or injured and can't work, then you know I don't know how much money you've got got in the bank. You might have millions in the bank, and if you've got millions in the bank, then maybe this is a yeah. different story. Yeah. But generally speaking, um, if you can't work, you're ill or, or injured, um, you'd end up being on the Centrelink Disability Support Pension. Um, you know. And you pointed and, it out mm-hmm. what that might the maximum benefit might be earlier. Yeah, so, so the age pension rates are the same as the disability yeah. support pension rate. So, so twenty four so, grand a year. Yeah, and it's not going to be as much as you and your family are, are used to living on. No. So, so you know, let have a think about that and and understand that you know that would be your fallback if yep. you didn't have income protection. Yeah. How long can you go without income if you've got no wages coming in? Um, so, Michael, you know, ask yourself that. We don't know your personal situation, but the answer for most Australian families is not very long. No. Um, you know, I, I think there have been uh, surveys and studies that show that the average Australian family can go about six weeks. Yeah, um, without, without, without income. Without income, yep. and then they're in dire straits. Yeah. Um, Michael, ask yourself, do you care about the well-being of your family? All right. And if you do, then you'll be paying some serious attention to um, to how you might put in place some income protection yep. insurance. I wrote in the in the show notes here that's a bit harsh, um, <laughs> and I wondered whether I should actually say it. But I don't think I don't think it's harsh at all, Steve. I think it's totally relevant. Um, you know, absolutely, you need to be considering that if you're the sole income earner. Hmm. I mean, it's just it's just ludicrous um, to to otherwise not. Oh, absolutely. Um, as you may have uh, 
already worked out, Luke and uh, listeners. Um, I'm a big believer that people should be yeah. um, considering income protection insurance. Yeah. Now, the costs, um, you know, you mentioned the cost, Michael. Mm-hmm. Um, the cost can actually be varied um, by adjusting certain um, features of, of income protection policies. So, number one is, um, you know, you can adjust the, the amount of time you have to be off work or unable to work before you're able to claim. So, a wait, and we call that the waiting period. Yeah. So, how long you have to wait and be off work before you can claim. Yep. And that can be as little as two weeks and as long as two years, yeah. generally. Yeah. So, so you've got some costs, yeah, so you've got so some ability to structure some got, cost yeah. savings. So the shorter that waiting period, so say so a 14-day waiting period means that you only have to be work, off work for a couple of weeks mm-hmm. before you're essentially on claim. Yep. Now that's more risky for an insurance company than someone who has yep. to be off work for two years. Yep. Um, so. The shorter the waiting period, the more expensive the policy cost. Um, So, and to give you another indication of that, if you had a one month waiting period, 30 days, Mm -hmm. um, that would be about 40%, sorry, uh, compared to a 90 day waiting period, just lost myself a bit there. um, A 90 day waiting period would be 40% less costly than a 30 day waiting period policy. So significant savings available by, by, uh, you know, considering those waiting periods. Yeah. And now at the other end, you can also adjust and work on how long the policy would actually pay you for if you're on a long term claim. Um, Generally speaking, I would suggest that people choose the longest period you know because yep. what you're trying to protect here is, is against financial devastation yeah, your future earnings capacity mm. is at risk yeah, forever so. however long you're you're likely to work for should be mm. matched with how long the benefit period should be yeah so generally you can have benefit periods uh, out to age 65 yep. sometimes even 70 yep. with certain providers and occupations some are shorter um, and some are shorter yeah so you can have a two-year benefit yep. period um, or you can have five years um it's about just looking at what your needs are and getting some advice and, and changing those things up so that you can find the level at which mm. this is affordable for you, Michael. Yep. Um, you can even have your super fund pay for some or all of the cost. Yep. Um, now, obviously, if, if you go down that path and don't make contributions into your super to compensate for that cost, then yep. it has an effect on the value Absol- of your superannuation over the long term. Yep. Um, but, you know, it is possible to actually have your superannuation pay the premiums. Fund it, uh, yeah. yeah. Um, and sometimes in the short term, uh, that might be the way to do it, just so yeah. that you get the cover in place. That's a and solution. Then you, yeah. Yeah. Now, Michael, you also mentioned cycling. Uh, most most insurers will consider you, or all insurers pretty much will consider your activities when you're assessing insurance. So they'll mm-hmm. look at you know, what your activities in your occupation are yep. and they'll look at what your uh, social activities or leisure activities are yep. too. So sports and sports things like and, that. Um, you know, sc- you know, parachuting and um, you know, jumping out of yeah. planes with wings on and uh, that sort of thing. Yeah, I think you might be a bit too risky for the insurer if you're doing that. Yeah, and remember <laughs> the insurer is taking on a risk and they're, they're looking to assess what the likelihood yeah. is that you're, you're going to make a claim. If you're a competitive cyclist, uh, you know, you race and you earn money maybe, you, you may find that some insurers will look to actually exclude that activity. Yeah. Um, so it pays to look around, um, see which insurers would uh, would provide favourable terms mm. based on your leisure activities. Yeah. And if cycling is, is yours, then you just need to make sure that you're looking at insurers that don't see that as too much of a risk. Yeah. So the short answer to your question, Michael, is this. Just get insured. 
Um, you wouldn't even consider not insuring your house or your car. Mm-hmm. Um, but many people balk at insuring their most valuable asset, yep. which is themselves yep. and their ability to earn future income. Yep. So I won't rattle on about income protection and insurance anymore. Good question, Michael. Thanks for it. And uh, we'll lead on to our second question yeah, for the episode. Okay. So we've got, um, so I'll, I'll cover that question, Steve. So it's uh, Carol and Tom. And their question is in relation to property and seminars. I'll just go through the question. So they've said, we went to a property seminar recently and we were told we could buy an investment property by setting up a self-managed super fund and borrowing. We're thinking of renting it to our son. Oh, is this a good idea? Oh, I like how you went, oh, then. <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking in my mind, uh-oh. Yeah, well, but, <laughs> but I'll let you answer the question. So, I mean, to to answer the question in relation to you being able to do that or it being a good idea, um, look, you you cannot rent the property to your son. It's in breach of what's known as sole purpose test, which is effectively superannuation legislation. Um, And renting it to a family family member in this instance is absolutely not allowed. Because it's taking a benefit from the asset um, before retirement. Correct. That's really what it's about. Yeah, the, it? the asset is is unpreserved before retirement because it's benefit. Yeah, it's, it's in breach of sole purpose test, yeah, and yeah. and the so, member yeah. is obtaining a benefit um, before they've met their preservation age. So so yeah, the the answer to your question is no. You cannot rent it to your son, um, and anyone who's told you that. Um, be, be very wary. Of. Well, there may be some convoluted ways that uh, you know, someone could maybe try to set that up for you and get around the, the well, rule. But um, it, you know, anything that's on the on the edge when self-managed super funds come into play, oh, it's not worth it. Absolutely not. You, you're not you you as the trustee of the of the self-managed super fund because that's what you will be. Um, are responsible for the management and operation of that fund, and you, by law, need to understand what the law is. So, 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 just say, Carol, it's Carol and Tom, isn't it? Yeah. Car- Carol and Tom. Okay, they can't rent it to their son, mm-hmm. um, but they're still interested in yeah. in buying a property in a self-managed super fund and renting it out to someone else. Um, okay. So, so, what are they? You know, what things they need to consider? Well, a couple of points here. So you've gone to a property seminar. So f- first, first and foremost, be be very wary of the motives of the people running the property seminar. Um, are they recommending a specific property um, <laughs> to, to purchase? <laughs> and if they are, run a mile. Um, <laughs> well, well, why would that be? Is well, it, you know, they're probably making money out of the property, yeah, aren't they? Uh, you know, so the setting up the self-managed super fund is a way to facilitate them selling a property. And and to be candid, Steve, you and I have seen examples of where um, people are recommending a specific property and, and what has happened in the past is that they typically recommend an in-house mortgage broker to go and finance that property and sometimes you'll find that these properties aren't quite worth what they're purchasing or paying for. Um, yeah. So we need to be mindful that not in all cases, but you know we've seen, seen plenty. So I think the key is yeah. if someone, if people are running a property seminar and attempting mm. to convince you that you should buy one of those properties through a self-managed super fund, make sure you engage people who are independent to give you advice and assessment around that strategy. Yeah, the structure and yeah. strategy. Yeah. Don't 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 just walk out signing some paperwork. That'd be that'd be stupid. Yeah. 
Um, you, you know, the other thing in here, if you st- obviously if you're still interested, um, word of warning, a self-managed super fund, and I alluded to earlier, is not easy to run. You are bound by serious laws that require you to be a responsible director, tr- tr- sorry, a responsible trustee of the fund. Um, if you don't understand what those obligations are, I don't think a self-managed super fund is for you. Um, and, you know, on that, trustee obligations, you need to ensure that you've got a suitable investment strategy. So if you're investing into a property 100%, the ATO wants to make sure that you've documented with that fund, in your fund, that you're diversified. So if you're not diversified, and you most likely won't be, if you've just borrowed and bought one property, you have a risk of being undiversified and, and potentially non-complying. Yeah. I don't know if it's non-compliant, but I think the, the ATO is, has been very clear that they want to see that that strategy is documented and is right. And yeah. I think their view is that in most cases they don't think it is. Um, well, I, think it, I, don't, I don't know that it's illegal, um, but I, I think that the ATO is um, very much on the front foot at making sure yeah. that um, you know, superannuation funds are diversified and aren't just relying on one asset to um, provide for the retirement yeah. needs of the member. I, I, I was actually, it's, I mean, valid point there. I, I actually thought that it was a requirement to, to have, have a level of diversification for the members, but I could, I could be wrong there. But, but regardless, we know that the ATO have in fact been writing to superannual, self-managed super fund trustees and stating to them that they don't believe that their fund is sufficiently diversified. Yeah, that's been happening. So. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. it's a very, yeah, it's absolutely best practice to make sure that you've got diversification yeah. in the investments yep. in your super fund. And and their point, you know, that leads straight into the next point. What if something goes wrong with with that asset? Um, you know, more recently, bushfires. What if what if the the asset is destroyed? What if the asset goes down in value? What if the asset is unable to generate the income you need in retirement? Your retirement plans are uh, you know kaput. They're yeah. dashed. We talk about all the time about don't put all your eggs in one basket. Yep. And it's if the only asset held in that self-managed super fund is that property, mm-hmm. and something goes wrong with it, and you mentioned you know a house burning down, well you know people say well it's insured, but what if you forget? What if the trustee has forgotten to insure it? Yeah. Okay, and it's burned down. It's the only asset that's um, yeah, there's not much left. Uh, yeah. Mm. Uh, there, there are look. There are a number of risks, and and you know we say generally that a self-managed super fund is not for most people. Um, certainly, it does have its place, um, and the purchase of property have, has its place within a self-managed super fund structure. But generally speaking, for most people, you don't need to add that level of complexity into your life. Yeah, I agree. Um, the other the other point I wanted to make, you know, to Carol and Tom is that you know just ensure that the strategy would fit in with your long-term goals and plans. Um, You know, buying a property in a self-managed super fund is only one piece of the retirement puzzle. Um, If it's suitable, um, it's only one piece of of the total retirement puzzle. So don't don't just look at it in isolation and say, hey, great property, we might make lots of money out of that property through a self-managed super fund, but what does that mean? How does it fit in with this strategy? Um, how are you going to live off um, that asset in retirement if it's only yeah. producing 2% net return in, in rent? Yeah, um, it's, exa- it's exactly yeah. right. And I highlight this point all the time to people. It's very very easy to sell a proportion of a share portfolio to fund income. It's very hard to sell a proportion of a house to fund income. Hmm. So 
if you don't have the rent coming in that you need to fund the income needs that you have, you can, you've either got one or two options. You sell the entire thing um, or you don't sell it at all and you, yeah. and you continue to have an income de- deficit. But, but just on that, and we'll include in the show notes, there's a really interesting podcast I listened to uh, published by the ABC and it was very much talking about this subject here in regards to property seminars, purchasing property inside a self-managed super fund, and just addressed some of the stories. Um, obviously, it had a tilt in there around you know, some of the scary stories and some of the, you know, people have been, you know, r- ripped off. So, you know, t- take that with a grain of salt. Um, but I thought it was really good and reasonably balanced for what the subject matter was. So we'll include that link in the show notes. Yep. Um, we can do that. We can do that, Steve. We can. Cool. I'll make sure that happens. Um, now, now, just because we think that self-managed super funds, and I think we both you know, showed that we have that view that they're probably not the best structure for most mm. people. Mm. Um, doesn't mean that they're not the best structure for for some or even Absolutely. many people. Absolutely, yeah. Some um, people, some people, it is it mm. is a completely valid stru- strategy and structure. Yep. The you know the 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 tackier is that um, basically you just need to make sure that you do your homework and you understand mm. what the pros and cons are and what the risks are. Um, we at some point in the future, and probably not in the very near future, we will we'll try and get a, a self-managed super fund expert on yep. to talk about you know what to consider and the pros and cons, so yep. that we can um, you know, spend a bit more time on it than um, than what we've done through Carol and Tom's question. Yeah, no, great. Well, yeah. guys, thanks so much for your question, um, and I think we might be wrapping up episode four, Steve. I think we are so that is it for episode yeah. four um remember uh, to go to www.themoneymen.com.au yep. and that's where we keep a copy of all of our podcasts cool. uh, you know obviously they're out on spotify and uh, google all the majors all and, the majors apple <laughs> podcasts and that type of thing um, but that, yeah, that's that's where our website is based. Yep. You can ask questions. You can email Luke or myself as well from there. Absolutely. Uh, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Um, keep your ear out for the next one in a couple of weeks' time. Until then, catch you later. Thanks, guys. See you later.